This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Welcome. This is The Little Pot of Joy, the podcast show with Andrea and Alice. Our community is made up of so many amazing and diverse groups of people, as are the programs on Joy 94.9. There is something for everyone. A little pot of joy is where we highlight just some of these amazing programs. We would like to show our respect and acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, of elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, whose land we are broadcasting from. We're opening this evening with a podcast from Rainbow Crusaders, Daughters of Belitis. Patrick takes a look back at the Australian chapter of the Daughters of Bolitis, who later became the Australasian Lesbian Movement. You can listen to the entire podcast by downloading it from the JOY website, www.joy.org.au forward slash Rainbow Crusaders, or download it for free from the iTunes store. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. You're listening to Rainbow Crusaders on Joy 94.9 as we speak about the Daughters of Belitis, who later became the Australasian lesbian movement. Belitis, a name common among those familiar with erotic poetry, specifically referring to the alleged lover of the ancient Greek poet and lesbian icon Sappho. In his book The Songs of Belitis, French poet Pierre-Louis described the courtesan of the sensual Sappho, Master's Truth, and it fooled even the most respected of scholars. The namesake, Daughters of Politis, began in America and soon was adopted by Australia in what was the first politically motivated and active group for same-sex attracted women, in fact for homosexuals in general, in Australia. The Australian group started after the suicide of a young woman rejected for her lesbianism. They were committed to improving the lives and the acceptance of female sexuality and lesbianism. You're listening to Rainbow Crusaders, and today we look at the Australian chapter of the Daughters of Belitis, who later became the Australasian Lesbian Movement. Although Australia's Daughters of Belitis started in late 1969, the first ever chapter in San Francisco began pre-Stonewall in 1955. Founded by eight women, including the legendary couple Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, the Daughters of Belitis began as a social group when Del and Phyllis were invited to join a group of women of the same orientation by a mutual friend Rose, and soon the small social group turned into an activist organisation. The name Belitis, taken from the book of poems by Pierre-Louis, was a clever ruse, Lesbian and gay were both too volatile a word to use. Songs of Belitis was a popular piece of literature for same-sex attracted women in the underground, closely followed by the controversial Well of Loneliness. The name was obscure enough to not arouse suspicion during the McCarthyist America, but a code word for those in the know. And if anyone got curious, the excuse was it was a poetry club. The early work of these self-titled variant women was most successful through the magazine The Ladder, this passage from Del Martin, read by Lana Wolfe, indicates the feeling of that the American group had in regards to lesbianism. The Daughters of Bilatus is a women's organisation resolved to add the feminine voice and viewpoint to a mutual problem. While women may not have had much difficulty with law enforcement, their problems are nonetheless real. Family, sometimes children, employment, social acceptance. However, 
The lesbian is a very elusive creature. She burrows underground in her fear of identification. She is cautious in her associations. Current modes in hairstyle and casual attire have enabled her to camouflage her existence. She claims she does not need help and she will not risk her tight little fist of security to aid those who do. Unbeknownst to each other, two Australian women, now known as Marion Paul and Claudia Pierce, subscribe to the ladder. The magazine secretary, Rita Laporte, introduced the two St Kilda locals. Is this a lasting Even though they were attracting members slowly, still, these daughters of Belitis were cautious. Lesbianism was not a crime, but socially unacceptable. The women's social role in society was also limited. In order to avoid trouble, the daughters of Belitis took a conservative approach to recruitment. For example, women were required to be 21 years of age, and if they were heterosexually married, had to have the written permission from their husbands. Francesca made the bold move, though, of appearing openly on the Bailey Report in 1970. This makes her the first homosexual in Australian history to be out of the closet on television. This appearance led to a key player in the organisation's history and Francesca's future partner, Phyllis Paps. From the new members of the Daughters of Belitis came a recognition that the group had the opportunity to create social change. To do this, the group decided to break from the Daughters of Belitis in America and become its own group, the Australasian Lesbian Movement, also known as the ALM. After this, founding member Marion Paul left. The reason for the break was that the ALM felt that pride demonstrations and gay power were possible in America but it would almost be impossible in Australia. The change of the name linked to the overall change in attitude for the ALM. It turned from a core group of politically-minded women to a social group that nonetheless had political goals, but little experience or understanding of how to achieve them. But what they did was courageous. Early in their meetings, the ALM contacted a wide variety of social workers, psychiatrists, the Humanist Society of Victoria and the Melbourne University's Women Liberation Group. Although concerned with the privacy of many members, the few who were open and out like Francesca used their personal contact numbers and advertisements. This meant that they not only received calls from lesbians, but also many crank calls and threats. But it seemed the television was still intrigued by the ALM. Both Francesca and Phyllis appeared together soon, soon afterwards on the ABC program This Day Tonight, despite the backlash that they then received. The Australasian lesbian movement continued to receive the latter and respected the American counterparts. Like the American counterparts, the majority of the group were not as interested in, confrontation, in confronting as much as assimilating. The majority of work that Phyllis and Francesca did was social support, Neither were qualified or capable. Alongside that, their lounge room was used as the drop-in. The group continued through its social events, including a play reading of Boys in the Band by Mark Crowley, which was later repurposed by Francesca Curtis as the Girls on the Roundabout, performed in their Ackland Street apartment. 
BLM, over the years of its existence, moved from a political support group to a socially conservative group. Its ambitions were to expand beyond Melbourne, but sadly, they failed due to the overwhelming pressure from within to assimilate and retain their positions in society. These tensions, the overwhelming demand for the external work, along with the group being central to Francesca and Phyllis's house, led to a burnout of the two women. Even though Phyllis and Francesca had left the Australasian lesbian movement and it later folded, it was still a catalyst for change. If not for the appearance of Francesca on the Bailey Report, further groups beyond the ALM would not have been possible. Founding member Claudia Pierce went on to develop Claudia's group, which pushed for lesbian activism within the women's movement, which in turn inspired links that continues from the, to this day. Phyllis and Francesca retired from gay activism. Phyllis has worked in women's advocacy, helping women in local government in the 80s, and always been linked with feminism. Francesca, on the other hand, has always been on the creative side. Thank you for listening to Rainbow Crusaders. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Phyllis Paps, Francesca Curtis, Lana Wolfe, the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, Graham Willett, and also Nick Henderson. With Don't know just what to do with myself. I'm so used to doing everything with you. Just don't know what to do with my time I'm so lonesome for you, it's a cry Going to the movies only makes me sad Parties make me feel as bad When I'm not with you I just don't know what to do like a summer rose It needs a sun and rain Oh, I need your sweet love To feed all the pain You're on Joy 94.9 and this is A Little Pot of Joy with Andrea and Alice. Up next from Saturday Magazine, Pike versus Bishop. Saturday Magazine is Joy 94.9's longest-running news and current affairs program, bringing you a unique mix of world news and queer culture. Pete presents a wonderful interview with AJ Kearns, who's a dad of two children. He's also the birth parent of one of the children. AJ gives us an insight into his own journey into transsexuality. AJ's was also showcased on ABC's Australian Story. If you're not able to listen to the show live, download the podcast from the Joy website, joy.org.au, or from the iTunes store. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. AJ Kearns is a suburban dad of two children, and he is also the birth parent of one of those children. We're going to uncover and unpack this particular story before it airs on Monday night on The Australian Story on ABC TV. AJ Kearns, welcome to Saturday Magazine. Hello. This is an intriguing story, and you'll forgive me if I seem um, incredulous or, or I actually make an incorrect statement and, and pull me up because part of my journey as well is, is learning the language of, of the transgender community. Is that how you identify as transgender? Yes, I do. Yes. So let's take a little bit of the trip in history. Um, at 35, you started to transition. 
Yes, yeah, I um, I came to a realisation over a period of time um, and um, that I was a man and, and sort of it, it's a process mm. that you sort of go through um, of that sort of realisation and then you do make a decision at some point, this is how I identify and, and usually once you make that uh, decision, then you're pretty keen to kind of get the ball rolling in terms of um, aligning your, your physical form to how you are. Had that always been there from when you were young? Looking back, I see that it has always been there. Mm. Um, I was unaware of what it was uh, at you the time. You couldn't put a name to it? Mm. No. Yeah, I, I really couldn't sort of, um, you know, if you'd asked me, I wouldn't have been able to tell you I was a man. I just, you know, I, there, was, there was something, all the pieces weren't quite fitting, but mm. I didn't know, uh, you know, how I was going to sort of... And you were attracted to women? I was, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so from sort of teen, teens onward. Oh, when um, puberty smacks us all and we realise what's going on. That's <laughs> right, yes, yes. Um, and I do recall talking to my friends about it and, and them saying, oh, but how do you know, you know, have you kissed a woman? I was like, well, no, I haven't even known. And they're like, well, how do you know? It's like, well, I just know. <laughs> I just So I was. Um, and so I, I sort of started um, sort of exploring that side of things mm-hmm. as I got a bit older. And then, as as you say, that realisation when you get to a, a certain age and you can put a name to or, or a category, if you will, to uh, how you feel inside, uh, how did that, that then you, – you started a family with your partner, Zoo? I did, yeah. 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 So we had been um, together for a few years, mm-hmm. um, an amazing relationship, and um, we decided to have a, a commitment ceremony – and it was a beautiful event. Wouldn't have been nice if you could have been married. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been fantastic. <laughs> I can't believe we're still not there yet. But anyway, it's uh, no, another story. I. Yeah, it's, another, it's a whole other story, <laughs> I think. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a beautiful event. And, and it was sort of shortly after that that I sort of started, I think um, I think it was being safe and loved and in a really good space mm. um, that I was, had that freedom then to sort of explore myself for who I was a lot more in that sense of safety. And so I really sort of started dawning on me not that long after that and, and bit by bit the pieces fell into place and mm-hmm. and um, we went on to, to decide. We'd always sort of talked about having kids and, yep. and um, went on with that process with uh, Zunam, uh, Zoo giving birth to the first... Uh, Your son Jasper? First child, yes. Yep. Um, which um, there was some complications during that that birth mm-hmm. um and um so that was kind of a process <laughs> were you already going through your your gender transition at that point or had you started the process i had but not physically mm-hmm. so i considered myself um a man yep. at that point um but i wasn't necessarily out in every area of my life mm-hmm. um but it was certainly how i identified uh and it's how i how i lived you know and then, as, as things moved along, you decided a second child was was going to make your family more whole. Yeah, it was always kind of the plan to have two children. Yep. Um, from from the get go, so um, I think having a sibling was a a great thing, and I, I sort of wanted to be able to provide that for for our first child. And so, yeah. So the then it was sort of down to you know who's going to give birth to this child, and mm-hmm. um, you know it was going to be dangerous for. For Zoo to, to have of the previous complications, yeah, to have a second child, and I was like, well, you know, um, I didn't mind the idea because in my head, and uh, it's probably a controversial kind of uh, approach to things, but um, 
I don't see pregnancy and birth as a female exclusive thing. Mm. I mean, obviously, the vast majority of the time, that is exactly where it sits. Um, yes. And and it's a beautiful thing and, and it's wonderful. Um, however, there is a small proportion of us that are male-identified that have the physical capabilities of, of giving birth, and I was one of those. So, you know... Um, yeah, it was one of those things that I, I thought, well, hey, let's give this a go. Um, and, it, you know, my, my systems worked just fine and, mm-hmm. and, and we fell pregnant very fast. And, and that was, um, you know, we had our second child on the way. Was the, 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 the donor, the sperm donor, the same one as, as the first child? Uh, yes. Okay, so there's, there's sort of that, that familiarity there, I guess, and that relationship between Jasper and, uh, and your second child. Um, how did you approach this with with your family and your friends when you were had already sort of made this this coming your coming out process and and how you identified and, and the way you presented and then had to almost take a step back? Well, it's you, you may you may read it differently, but I, I'm sort of from a practical sense, I guess. I would be asking that question of, is this taking a step back? Sure, and I, I think probably other people's perspectives may have viewed it that mm. way. Um, I never did. Um, because it's perfectly natural to you. It's, it's yeah. perfectly natural to me. I mean, it's it's my body. It's always mm. been my body. Mm-hmm. And I've always understood that it had this capacity. Um, that doesn't change my gender. Um, and I think that's where what needs to be explored in that people don't understand that gender and biological sex are often the same a line but then obviously in transgender people that isn't uh, aligned and you know that's without even going into the the idea of gender being a spectrum as opposed to you know only two options so and I, I think i think you're absolutely correct certainly i i would support the idea that gender is a spectrum um have no questions about that i think that's a, a valid and, and relevant statement um, I don't think the rest of the community is quite caught up with we definitely enlightened not. folk. No, they definitely haven't caught up. Um, you know, it's it's, and that's one of the reasons that I decided to step forward is that, you know, there needs to be more positive trans stories out there to say, hey, you know what, we exist and that's okay and we're not the same as you and mm. that's okay too, you mm. know, and there's beauty in diversity and um, let's all just live our lives and and sort of, you know, love each other for who we are and, and not trying to fit people into boxes that we have preconceived in our minds. So I think when I was sharing it with my friends and family, to me it wasn't really a big deal. It was just like, hey, isn't this wonderful? We're having a second child. Mm. Um, and, yes, I'm happening to be the one who's birthing it. Hey, isn't that exciting? Mm. You know, like, um, you know, what a what a blessing, what a beautiful process to be able to be part of. Um and it's always kind of been that way and, and, and it was received that way. So um, I didn't see it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm secure in my masculinity. I'm secure in my, myself as a man. So I, I, I'm not in any way confronted by the fact that, you know, this activity is normally done by women. Well, mm. that's okay. That's, there's guys doing lots of activities out there in the world that are normally often done by women. N- normally done by women. And, hey, let's just sort of let our minds get out of that, that sort of category and box capacity that people like to stay in because it's convenient and it's it's comforting and say actually this is okay you know so you know i think that what's foremost has to be um sort of looked at is the health and well-being of the members of the family all members of the family um and and the happiness of those members so mm. you know um to have a healthy happy uh, at the time 
I would consider wife and, and children, etc. That's the priority. As a father, you want to provide for your family in whatever way is possible. And this was a way I could provide for my family. Um, and so I did. So um, now you have Jasper and Luca. Yes. Um, and then you've have you completed your transition physically? Oh, look, it's funny, isn't it? Because the word transition always indicates there's a start and an end. And, and, yeah, well, and, I don't know if it is. It's, it's kind of a funny concept because mm. I don't know if that's really ever the case. I mean, I think people, when do you know you're finished? I guess, are you happy with your physical form? At the moment, yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, and well, that's probably the smarter question for me to ask. Are you happy with your physical form? Yeah, yes. yeah, I am. You know, I'm. I feel. Um, you know, I think for me, and as and for a lot of trans people, it's is has my dysphoria subsided to a point where I can get on with my life and not have to think about it every day. And the answer to that is yes. Mm. You know, I don't have to think about. Um, you know that that it's an overbearing, overwhelming sensation when you have to deal with dysphoria. Mm. Um, daily and continually throughout the day and so when you're being misgendered all the time and that sort of thing and it's it, it that's what weighs on your mind so heavily and i think what what pushes people closer to the edge and over the edge is, is that sort of sort of um you know and the, and that's partly on how you're read out in the world but it's also how you just feel in your own self so for me and they now quite often be different battles ab- absolutely mm. yeah absolutely mm. and and Sometimes they they intermingle as well, and it, it's it's how do we support people when they are in that position? Because that's when trans people are most vulnerable. Mm. When they know who they are, their body isn't fitting that, and you're feeling that that sense of distress. So, that's to me is the important message. How do we help those people at that point? You're on Joy ninety four point nine, and this is a little part of Joy with Andrea and Alice. Up next from Stand Up Straight, I've been looking so long at this picture book of you. In this episode of Stand Up Straight, Michelle chats with Clayton and Megan from Transpositions about picture books that embrace diversity. If you can't listen to the show live, download the podcast from the Joy website or from the iTunes store. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Tonight's theme is about the literature that's out there for Mm -hmm. children, young teens, for connecting between them, the parents, the grandparents of all genders, all nationalities, I suppose, everything rolled into one and how we can educate our kids, I suppose. Now, we've asked whether you would read, what types of books would you read to your kids? What books would you like having being read to you? Um, One of the things I, I asked a number of parents over the last few days, would you read these stories to kids? Now, the really interesting thing, almost everybody said, why not? They couldn't Mm -hmm. believe I was actually asking the question. So I thought that was really interesting slash nice that people straight away, they thought, you know, what's the big deal sort of thing. And that was actually something else that they said that there was no big deal and that we should be reading it to them as soon as you start reading in general. Absolutely. Because there was a bit of a discussion I'd had with other people. You know, do you, um, some people had said, well, I don't know if I would read that to them yet. I don't know if they'd understand. So my argument back to them was, well, they don't need to understand that we don't explain, you know, a man and a woman having a baby. We don't explain that any differently to what you would in any other relationship. So there was a, a few people that just sort of assumed you would just start reading everything all at once, which I thought was Mm. um, a much better idea, obviously. Kids don't have to actually understand everything you read to them, but what helps them is that exposure to diversity, which is going to make them a better all-rounded person in the end. So whether um, you're a same-sex parent or whether you – your child, you don't know what your child's going to be when they get older. 
unless they're the bravery of Bella and has exp- <laughs> expressed their, their, their transgender and things like that. So exposing your kids to all this will make them much more accepting people when they grow older. And, and, and we had actually had a discussion at work about that and the fact that we are we're sometimes subconsciously as parents you might make decisions as to what you think your child should or shouldn't learn or do or say or whatever without giving them the opportunity to actually have their own opinions. We think that we know better for them when mm. often we don't. Mm. And I think providing – and I think as you said, Clayton, it's making them a well-rounded person – and they're going to, you know, every nationality and religion and uh, you roll all that into one, surely that makes for better children. And you, as a teacher, Clayton, mm-hmm. do you, you in your classroom, you've got all religions and yep. cultures and financial background and all of that sort of thing, don't you? My school has 80-odd different nationalities represented wow. within the school. So wow. we certainly have a huge amount of diversity. And like and Tango makes three. I've read to my grade. Um, it's, it's and they my, are how old? Uh, your grade? I have grade sixes, so they'd be eleven-ish year olds. So. What kind of questions did they ask you about it? They didn't. I think at eleven they have a fairly good understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a few giggles and stuff, but it's the maturity, and you have to allow that. You can't say no. You must not laugh because mm-hmm. kids are still exploring what all this means, and for them talking about same-sex attracted people or same-sex attracted penguins, um, they're going to get a laugh out of it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's actually okay because it will help them not laugh about it when they're older. Correct. Mm-hmm. So you as, as a teacher, do you have to preface what you're saying in any way at all or do you just read it as a book like you read any book because then you're highlighting something different, aren't you? Yeah, I, I just read this blank. I, I just said, look, this is a, I said this is a true story. That's yeah. what I think. And then I just read the story and let them absorb what was happening in the story. One of the students in my grade, she um, asked, we were doing a bit of a reverse thing to see if the kids could ask me questions I didn't know the answer to. Mm. And they asked, she, her question was, what was Caitlin Jenner's boy name? And it's not the great, mm. the best terminology to use, but it's terminology that's accessible for kids. Mm. So, and the question itself was great that she was feel comfortable to ask that question. Yeah, that's good. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's fantastic that mm. children can feel comfortable with asking those kinds of mm. questions and sort of really question what gender really means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to pick up, sorry, Michelle, uh, to pick up on your point earlier about the fact that you're having the affirmation at the end, and this book um, is another book, I'm not going to read much of it, but If I Had a Hundred Mummies, <laughs> written and illustrated by Van der Carter. Um, it's just a book about a, a child exploring what it's like if she had a hundred mummies and getting a hundred kisses every night and all this sort of <laughs> thing. And, like, and she sort of goes the goods and the bads, like too many presents, too many cakes to make, that sort of thing. And then by the end, she's like, oh, uh, I've got... Uh, I was going to say, she'd love the hundred presents herself. Yeah, that's the say. If I had a hundred mummies, hang on a minute. It, I thought it was a good idea, but now I think it's not. I don't want to have a hundred mummies. I'll just have the two I've got. <laughs> so that's just beautiful, and it's not explicitly she's a daughter of lesbians. It's, it's um, just right at the end. I'll just stick with my two mums. She's got two mums. That's yeah. it. Clayton, have you read any books that have had trans themes at all? No, the I haven't. Kids? Yeah, and it's, it's um, just lack of access to them. I don't know how to get them, or without a whole lot of like but, even Antigua yeah, Three was hard, and that's you know um, more gay is more further along, and it's gen- it's um, I can't think of the right word. Um, Progression, progression, like yeah. yeah, transgenders behind, unfortunately, in social acceptance, and it's still hard to get the the books about the gay themes. Well, I was going to say, if you're an aspiring writer or author, (laughs) you want to corner the market. There's an ample market there willing Mm -hmm. to buy these books. So, would you then? And and I'm focusing on you being the teacher, but would you have to? Would you think 
longer about reading one if you did have a book that had a trans theme? Uh, I would not have a problem with it because I know that the kids are looking for that sort of information. Yeah. But I, I know that certainly teachers would have a big think about it before they read it. Definitely. But would you be thinking about potentially what other what your students, family or parents would I always be thinking? think about that. Yeah. And at some point you just have to say, well, I'll deal with that later. Deal with that. Well, mm-hmm. You must. I wish I was had an eleven year old that could uh, come and sit in your classroom. Why do you think these books are so in- important? Was one of the questions I was going to ask, and you just answered the question immediately. It's about educating, educating isn't it? Definitely. And and do you think it's harder to educate the parents? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, once you set new ways, it's uh, this a phrase that I often say to other teachers is it's much harder to uneducate than to educate. Mm-hmm. So if you get if you teach them the wrong thing in the first place, trying to get them back from that is a lot harder work. Yeah. So educating the right way first time is a, the best approach you can probably do. I wish I obviously when my son was was much younger, I didn't know that he was gay. Although some might have said they knew from the minute he you mm-hmm. know walked out. Out of out of my womb, but um, yeah, he in, um, in, in nine inch to le- nine inch to letter, <laughs> yeah, and a feather boa. And was there glitter everywhere <laughs> when he was born? I've said that. I've got really before. bad images happening now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I've said that, and I thought, oh gee, I've probably gone too far. And I probably have, but anyway, um, they can't hear me tonight. Mm. Um, so I wish I had, because I know that I would have read them. I wish I had read them to him. Although sometimes. Even if you haven't got the books, hey, even having the conversation mm. around, just even you – I know I don't like using the word normal because there is no normal. There's lots of different normals. There's a mm. multitude of normals. But being able to say if the word gay was brought up or anything within the GL, under the GLBTI umbrella, we always said, and, yeah, so – so what? You know, what's the big deal? And that was kind of the rhetoric that my husband and I had because even though we didn't have a text in front of us, mm. that was kind of that mindset that we were in. So I think that this, you know, maybe parents and people can't have that conversation with their kids potentially either. Another question, I suppose this is kind of for all of us, is how do you convey the importance to other parents or other adults that don't think that they, these books need to be read or these stories need to be told? How do you have that conversation if they don't see the need or the importance? I really don't know how to answer that question because if these people have those ideas in their heads already, where do you go from there? Yeah, it, 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 but then people's minds can be changed. We've all mm, had people true. where minds and ideas have changed. Mm. Everyone's ideas change over time. It's they about do. education. Really. Very true. And maybe actually some adults reading some of these picture books could actually help them change their minds. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's true. Um, And I was mentioning the word normal before and Megan had a fabulous line. I do. So as far as looking, this has actually came to me from someone else and I thought, yeah, it it really sounds quite right, but normal is only a setting on a washing machine. (laughs) That's great, actually. Or a dishwasher or on a clothes dryer, but that's all it is. What is normal? As long as you don't get stuck in the normal cycle, that's fine. You're on Joy 94.9, listening to A Little Pot of Joy with your hosts, Andrea and Alice. Up next from Queries, is drag queer? Lana puts a question out there. Is drag queer? On the way to answering this question, she discusses historical and cultural understandings of both drag and queer. Completely eye-opening. And this is great. She's got some really interesting guests on the program to discuss this question. So you must listen to the entire podcast. You can download it from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash queries, or download it for free from the iTunes store. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. 
This week on Queries, we are delighted to bring you three perspectives on drag and consider, as we deal with our topics each week, is drag queer? This came to our attention a few weeks ago when Glasgow Free Pride, an independent non-commercial pride celebration, decided to exclude drag performers from pride celebrations. The reason given was that some transgender and gender-questioning people might feel uncomfortable. This was reversed but illustrates how drag experiences can so easily be erased. I do have a little warning for you today. Just be aware that there are a couple of instances in which the language in the interviews is a little salty. First up today, we speak to Brody Paparella. Brody is a writer performer who has dressed in drag within the context of acting in a community production, and this is what he has to say. I feel like with when you're doing drag is um, it's something that a lot of people feel very compelled to do and it's a very big part of their identity and for me to sort of do it for the humour I just sort of felt like I was appropriating something that I, I shouldn't so um, you know, the, the people who run the show are very good friends of mine and that, that part was great so I decided to, to take it at the beginning it was just going to be this sort of piss take almost I just really wasn't happy with that so over time you know, we invested more of the budget and actually really properly told me up by the end of it and it was really very liberating. Um, I think drag does have a very big impact to the outside world and has a lot to say about someone's sexuality and their gender identity. I think we take forms of dress as to be way, way too big an indicator of someone's sexuality or gender identity. So I think I was nervous about the kinds of conversations that, you know, all the kind of explanations I'd be expected to deliver and also the kinds of questions that people would have that I didn't feel like I was qualified to answer someone who has who had been, you know, performing drag queen at the clubs or, you know, or had a really strong, you know, reputation for their drag persona. Over the years I've developed a pretty big resilience to that sort of thing. Since doing the show, I felt a lot more comfortable wearing the clothes I wanted to and not being too fussed about the, the gender of clothing. You know, clothing doesn't you know, there's no genitalia on clothing. So we can't really uh, prescribe clothing to certain sexes. Next up, Andrew Farrell. Drag queens are stereotypically viewed as gay men that dress in drag. But what if you're genderqueer? What if you think all gender is a performance? This is what Andrew Farrell, an Indigenous genderqueer academic and drag queen, has to share. Drag is really just kind of a creative outlet in which I can explore my own expression. And that just kind of incites gender identity... But more so, I'm much more invested in just being kind of a creative person. It's more constructed around my identity than yeah. it is kind of just a costume that I put on. A good example is Dame Edna. She's a character actress. And there are many different kind of subgenres of drag that, that people inhabit, whether it be for theatre, whether it be for just purely performance, or whether they are very subversive and kind of really take on multiple different ideas like gender fucking and blurring the lines between gender. That whole kind of category of drag just has a lot of subgenres on which performers fall on. And for a lot of us, myself, I'm not predominantly a, a performer, a stage performer. I merely just kind of explore drag through my own experimenting with gender identity. That being said, I still perform. I still consider my gender a performance, whether I put on a dress or whether I'm in day-to-day 
absolutely dragged. I just, I think it's kind of a life performance, an art piece that just goes on and on. A well-known feminist, uh, Sheila Jeffries, I believe she was talking about drag as woman-facing, and that kind of provoked a response to me to question what kind of femininities that drag personifies. And my own conclusions really was that drag beyond kind of, you know, those essential ideas about being an emulation of femininity is more of an exacerbation of feminine ideas feminine ideals that are that are more or less kind of constructed out of what we've come what I've come to known as patriarchy. So it's more of a, a hyper feminine side of things rather than realistic de- depictions and a lot of drag performers have other other opinions about that. Some drag performers kind of blur the lines where they where some of them may be trans identified or identify as female full time but also um inhabit performance spaces. So it's kind of like there's one element there where we're being critiqued for kind of being a mockery of feminine archetype, but really I see it as something that is more complex. Within the dramatic communities, a double standard historically affected the use of drag in male-dominated societies where active roles were reserved for men. These conventions were unbroken before the 20th century, and now there's a lot of feminist critiques about the role of drag as perpetuating misogynistic notions of femininity. But what about drag performers who fight discrimination, including racism and sexism? Next, we have Simon Hunt, the man behind Pulling Pants Down. I think of Pauline as a clown, really, or, or like a traditional jester in the King's Court or something. It's just someone who's using costume, in a way, to, to be able to speak from a position of presumed subversion in some way. I mean, Pauline is also a drag queen and is seen predominantly as that way. And I think that what Pauline is has changed over time as well. But at the same time, I, I, when I came into it, it wasn't really a drag aspect. It was more about the politics. You know, my previous dress-ups before Pauline had been as uh, Fred Nile and John Howard, and then um, I was taking on issues that Pauline Hanson was bringing up, so I became Pauline, which automatically made it into a drag queen. But I guess I always saw it coming from a bit of a different angle. It was sort of an odd thing to me because I had actually never done drag before, and I was instantly faced with the minefield that that represented in terms of it being a female impersonation and some of the darker history of that female impersonation in particular within the, um, what I call like the gay scene at that time. And so it's not like a decision was made that the best way to present these political issues for a white man like myself was to do it within a female avatar. It's more about sort of the flow of history of um, my own activism rather than a particular decision that this was the best place or the best methodology to use in order to do that. That was Simon Hunt, the man behind the clown and king jester Pauline Pantsdown. We have been asking the question, is drag queer today? What do you think, Emma? I strongly suspect it is. And I usually land on most of our uh, topics at the end of each show as um, I think our topic is queer. And I think a lot of that goes to your guest selection. And Ah. so perhaps we should also be thanking Lana for putting these shows together. They are fantastic. Thank you. So you think drag is queer? 
Um, I think drag is queer, and I think in, in listening to Simon's, um, Simon's piece, it's the purpose to which he puts it as well has a lot to do with it. And um, I think we do tend to forget that a lot of drag performers are politically active. They're activists uh, in the queer community. And so I think it's quite important. Mm, I really liked the opportunity to be able to show a different side of drag today. So I want to thank Brody, Andrew and Simon for the interviews today. This will be up on the podcast um, very shortly. You're listening to Queries on Joy 94.9. You're listening to Joy 94.9 and this is a little pot of joy with Alice and Andrea. And we've come to the end of another evening and uh, there's some really amazing content on the Joy website And I think that we can't recommend enough keeping your eye on the new programs like Rainbow Crusaders and Queries that we had tonight because they're just, they're full of energy and they're creating some amazing content. But also all of your classic favorite programs are still churning out amazing content. And uh, we're going to have a whole lot of new programs coming on air very shortly because the Taste of Radio graduates have just about graduated. That's right. And if you're interested in the Taste of Radio course, uh, there's one coming up soon, isn't there? It's an express course in September. So if you're interested in learning to come on radio and be part of Joy, you can go to joy.org.au and check that out as well. Exciting. So jump on the website, check out Taste of Radio and check out these amazing podcasts. You can find more of the complete podcasts on the Joy website joy.org.au or download them for free from the iTunes store. You've been listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. See joy.org.au and click on our podcast link to subscribe to your favourite podcasts free. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.